Thanks for checking out the Good Morning Hamilton podcast. I'm Rick Samprin. Hamilton Food Bank saving hundreds of people from going homeless. Fixed or variable, what mortgage option should Canadian homeowners choose? Most Canadians are expected to curb their holiday spending this year. You will learn about Wayside House of Hamilton, TikTok offering a new adults-only version, and guys, we're being told to forget about the happy wife, happy life mantra. The GMH podcast starts now. This is the Good Morning Hamilton podcast on 900 CHML. There is a new report looking into the rent-to-income ratio in Hamilton households, and nearly 2,500 Hamilton residents say food banks save them from homelessness. Our next guest on Good Morning Hamilton is a good friend of 900 CHML, Joanne Santucci, CEO of Hamilton Food Share. Joanne, good morning. How are you? Good morning, Rick. How you doing? I'm fantastic. The uh, Hamilton Food Share and researchers at McMaster University uh, teamed up to look at the connection between food bank usage and the current housing crisis. What did you find? Well, you know, the interesting thing is we've been talking about the income ratio for quite a while, according to housing expenses, your basic needs like rent, eat, hydro. And when we did this report, most of the times when you do reports, you look at failing policies and then attach all the stats and information to that and you make recommendations around that. This time we decided to actually go to the people we're serving because as you start to pull numbers, you don't really understand the context and how people are, are, are grappling with life given those numbers. So that's why this, impo- this is really important. They said to us, we asked how important is the food bank, and when somebody asked that question, the whole room was just in alarm. Oh, what's going on? What's happening? The alarm was so palatable in that room just by asking that question. So what they're saying to us is that food banks help them with a support and a resource where they can redirect other resources, such as maybe money in their pocket toward that rent, toward the heat, toward the hydro. And as we know, these expenses and the cost of living exponentially is just getting so far out of reach that people now are experiencing not just hunger when they come to a food bank, but are now experiencing the risk of homelessness. That is dramatic indeed. When you were reviewing the details of this report, the findings, uh, did anything jump out at you? Anything surprising? Anything disappointing? Anything sobering? I think that one that shook me the most was we said that what if food banks didn't exist? It was just a rhetorical question of how would they manage from there? And the, the, the answers I got were so staggering. First of all, they would just go hungry more often, right? They would become homeless. They would put a spouse that they're caring for at home into a long-term facility because they couldn't care for them. Or they would release their pets into the street. They would have no choice in all of these things. If you look at Hamiltonians and how hard they work all year long to face these kinds of scenarios at the end of the day was so alarming for me. And this is why this report uh, is so important. It's now, said we've talked about the disparity for so long. Now the disparity means people are going to be spilling into the street. The parks are going to start, you know, getting more tented. Where are people going to go? And the people who are in this, these uh, situations have nowhere else to go. There is no cheaper housing than where they're living. Our guest on Good Morning Hamilton on 900 CHML, Joanne Santucci, the CEO of Hamilton Food Share. We're talking about a new report from Hamilton Food Share and McMaster University that shows nearly 2,500 Hamilton residents say food banks save them from homelessness. Another a tidbit of info from this report is that more than 30% of people who were surveyed are at a higher risk of losing their homes. That's an awful lot of people. It is. You know, um, 
when you look at people who have that income ratio, like just for instance, you look at all rents, like that's all the, the, the news is about is the rental market, how much it is for a, a single apartment, that kind of thing. But when you look at people who are on um, Ontario Works or OW, uh, I mean, OW, which is Ontario Works, or ODSP, which is uh, Ontario Disability Program, it's so alarming what they're already starting out with at the month in a deficit. Like you take a single person just on, on welfare alone, they make about $800. They're already $1,200 below the poverty line. Not to get beyond poverty and pull themselves out. Below that line that we have now distinguished is if you are below that line, you are going to be struggling with your basic necessities. Can you imagine starting out single uh, and you're already $1,200 down? A family is almost $1,300 down below the poverty line. So when we talk about this disparity, the disparity is growing because of the crises we're in. And if you look at CERB, uh, many people who claimed CERB as their income last year, uh, poverty fell. It fell in percentage because that amount, the standard was $2,000 a month. That actually stemmed the tide from a lot of uh, uh, humongous visitors coming to, uh, or a significant amount of visitors coming to the food bank. Uh, that was one of the things that actually uh, allowed us to keep continuing. If we had to take on all of that as well, I'm not sure the food bank could have weathered it. But just look at the last six months, Rick. Last six months, we've had about 53,000 people affected by hunger, just by the, this incredible emergency food system that we have 23 uh, organizations fighting every, every day in the community to get people what they need. It's time to have a plan around it, and it's inexplicably now linked by the people who come to the food bank uh, to homelessness. Now that you have some tangible data, is this report going to lead to any changes at Hamilton Food Share, some, um, um, or how it operates? I think right now it's absorb the information, bring all the like-minded people together and figure out how can we all work together to ensure this gap gets closed even more. It's just the start of a really hard conversation, especially around coming out of the pandemic. Everybody's depleted of a lot of things, you know what I mean? Uh, food share itself is feeling the pinch. Like our biggest cost centers are gas, transportation, and food. The biggest uh, offenders on the hike, uh, price hike index, you know what I'm saying? So uh, when you look at, uh, at food, like just food alone, uh, you know, uh, cereals, 23%, cheese, eggs, eggs, what's going on there? 44% increase there. Normal Hamiltonians are grappling with this high inflation. Can you imagine if you already live below the poverty line, what your anxiety must feel like every day? Yeah, it's it's not fun, that is for sure, for those 2,500 uh, Hamilton residents yeah. who say that food banks save them from homelessness. Uh, that number is probably a lot larger than that. Joanne, really appreciate your time today. Thanks for joining us, and best of I luck pleasure. going forward. Have a great day. Thank you. You too. Joanne Santucci, CEO of Hamilton Food Share. One other item in this report that we didn't have time to get to is that it found that uh, unaffordability is no longer just a downtown issue in this city. That food insecurity, that unaffordability is citywide. It is everywhere. You're listening to the Good Morning Hamilton podcast from 900 CHML. Well, if you have a mortgage, you are among the millions of Canadian homeowners out there who are having that internal debate, or maybe it's with your better half saying, should we be in a fixed mortgage or a variable mortgage? 
There could be pros and cons depending on your situation. But with these high inflationary times, this is a this is a big debate in many homes across this country. So what should we do? Barry Choi is a personal finance expert and joins us now on Good Morning Hamilton. Barry, good morning. How are you? Good morning. Thanks for having me. I'm good. You recently wrote about this in the Financial Post, the headline, How to Decide if You Should Lock in Your Mortgage Rate or Stay with Your Variable Rate. Um, we know we know there's a certainty, and that is the Bank of Canada next week <laughs> is probably, for the sixth time this year, going to hike um, the, the um, key lending rate, which obviously the banks will follow suit and increase their mortgage rates. Should Canadian homeowners with variable rate mortgages lock into a fixed rate or play the waiting game? <laughs> I think that, you know, this is the most basic answer, but I think it addresses what a lot of people are feeling. Listen, if you're at home and you've got like an adjustable rate mortgage where your mortgage prices rates go or monthly payments go up as the Bank of Canada increases the rates and you're stressing out, you can't sleep at night, you're worried about your budget, you should definitely lock it. Don't worry about like what could have been in the past. Like, had I locked in earlier, I could have saved more money. That doesn't matter. If you're if you're freaking about your payments, uh, now is the time to lock in. Who knows where rates will go? But if it allows you to sleep better at night, read a plan and budget for the future, I think that's worth more than any potential savings. There are, and I didn't know this. There are two types of variable rate mortgages. Can you explain that? Yeah. So the first uh, one, which was traditionally more common in the past, is called an adjustable rate mortgage. So as mortgage rates from the Bank of Canada or rather your lender go up and down, so do your monthly payments. So with another increase of 0.50 points that we're expecting, which is half a percentage, uh, your monthly payments will go up. Uh, but on the other hand, uh, variable rate mortgages in the last 10 years have been very popular in the sense that you can choose one where your payment stays the same, but as rates go up and down, only your interest changes. Now, this has been pretty good when uh, interest rates have been relatively stable. But as we all know, as you just mentioned, uh, rates have gone up six times in the last pretty much, you know, six months for that matter, roughly speaking. Uh, so eventually your rates, your interest payments are going higher and higher and higher. And what that means is you're paying less into your mortgage. So your amortization schedule, which is the length of, of how long you pay your mortgage, gets longer and longer eventually to the point where you're paying more interest than what you're actually putting into your home. And that's not good, especially for banks who want their money. Uh, so they'll force you to increase your payments to make sure you're building equity again. We're talking about fixed versus variable mortgage rates here on Good Morning Hamilton on 900 CHML. Our guest is Barry Choi, personal finance expert. You have an example in your article of a homeowner with a half million dollar mortgage. And the difference between a 2% mortgage rate and a 6% rate is astronomical. <laughs> it is, you know, just to set the scene, you, you know, I wrote like a $500,000 mortgage, which is very common in the Hamilton, greater Toronto area on a 25 year amortization schedule. So if you signed up in March, just bought your home and, and your lender was like, Hey, you know what? 2% interest rate, your, your monthly payments only going to be about $2,100 a month. Sounds great. You might want to jump at that opportunity, but now as interest rates go up, you know, realistically speaking, they've gone up 3% since then, since then. So they're probably paying about $2,900 now. That's an $800 difference. If interest rates go up just one more percent, they're going to see a difference of $1,000. And that's, remember, we're talking about when they signed up in March. Uh -huh. What a difference, $1,000 every single month. I don't know about you, but I don't think I'd be able to find an additional $1,000 a month in my budget, regardless how, how well I sit. And that's why a lot of people are freaking out. And it's understandably uh, because these are times that no one expected. 
um, and it came a lot quicker. And unfortunately, it's, it's hitting people where it hurts the most, their yeah. wallets. I'm not sure how those people are doing it. That is for sure. <laughs> Listeners are probably asking themselves, for, the, for those who are not stressing out at night and they have a variable rate mortgage, they're probably still asking themselves, should we lock in? And if we do, when should we do it? So the, the question is, do we, do we lock in now or do we wait and take it on the chin and just hope for rates to go back down? Well, for me, it kind of depends on your personal situation. I know that's generalizing a little bit, but you know, a few things to point out very quickly. So if you're on a variable rate mortgage, generally speaking, it's a lot cheaper to break your mortgage as opposed to if you lock into a fixed mortgage. It just costs you significantly more uh, if you're in a fixed mortgage. So let's just say you're in a variable rate mortgage. You know, you actually got your mortgage five years ago and you've only got two years left on your term. Uh, so you've actually been on the right side of interest rates for, for about three years. Maybe it makes sense to just ride things out to see what happens because at least you know when your term is up in two years you can reassess uh and on top of that you know maybe you just look around and be like hey what are the rates right now what can i get is it worth it um and for a lot of people you, you know I, I don't like to generalize but the reality is if you're not stressing out it probably means you've got the financial means to weather the storm uh so it won't affect you in the grand scheme of things one way or another uh so for those people it probably doesn't really matter if they lock in now or not well, some great tips and advice from Barry Choi, personal finance expert. Barry, appreciate the time today. Thanks for joining us. No problem. Anytime. You have a good one. You're listening to the Good Morning Hamilton podcast from 900 CHML. We're not inclined to test Canadians' patients. Uh, Canadians are being harmed by inflation, and you know that trust that we're going to return inflation to target needs to be rewarded. It, you know, Canadians need to see inflation. Uh, really moving towards the target. That is the Bank of Bank of Canada Governor Tiff Macklem uh, giving his thoughts on rising inflation and where the central bank is setting its interest rates. And, of course, that is certainly having an impact on our purchasing power. And to that end, the 2022 holiday retail outlook from Deloitte Canada is out. What are consumers expected to do and how are retailers going to respond? Marty Weintraub is a partner and national retail practice leader at Deloitte Canada and joins us now on Good Morning Hamilton. Marty, good morning. Hey, good morning. So how is uh, high inflation and all the economic uncertainty that we're seeing, is uh, how's all that going to impact the holiday shopping season? Well, unfortunately, I wish I had a, a better news story for you this morning. But uh, when we did our survey just uh, just recently, uh, we've learned from Canadians that they're planning to reduce their spend this year, about 17% from last year, which is a, which is a material reduction. So, and and is that a usual thing coming into, uh, you know, the economic uncertainty conditions? You know, a couple of years ago with the pandemic, did we see that kind of dip? You know, the, the supply chain issues we saw last year, was there a dip in that kind of um, uh, uh, shopping, I guess, outlook that, that consumers had? Yeah, so we've been doing this for, for several years now. And uh, outside of 2020, which was the first year in our study that we saw a dip over previous year, which is not surprising because that was shopping season number one during the pandemic we saw a drop we saw a pretty big bounce back last year over 2020 and this year is uh, down to about 1520 dollars on average uh, canadians said they're going to spend holiday shopping and last year that was over 1800. so are we going to be spending our money on different things this year uh I, yes, in some respects, uh, one of the interesting nuances to the story is although the spend overall will go down, we, we measure lots of different categories within that spend. And the, the categories where Canadians told us they're going to likely make the biggest cuts are going to be in some interesting places. So, for example, 
what are the categories we call non-gift electronics and non-gift clothing. Those are going to go down, you know, 55 and 27% respectively per our survey. And that's not too surprising because, you know, when we go shopping, as you and your and your listeners may know, sometimes we buy one for somebody and one for myself. What two for somebody, one for myself. So we tend to buy for ourselves during the shopping season. And Canadians are saying that's likely where the biggest cuts are going to come together with some travel. Is brand loyalty still important to shoppers? It absolutely is. Although Canadians did say this year that uh, because of rising prices and the pressure it's putting on pocketbooks, they are prepared to shift brands. And in fact, about 72% of Canadians will shift brands and buy from retailers that sell at lower prices if if they have to. We're looking at the 2022 holiday retail outlook from Deloitte Canada here on Good Morning Hamilton on 900 CHML. And our guest is Marty Weintraub, partner, national retail practice leader with Deloitte Canada. We've heard over the last number of years now that, uh, you know, many people are, you know, looking at those experiences as opposed to getting a gift or a gift card or or something to that uh, that extent. Are experiences, those life experiences still going to be popular? They are, uh, and simply because over the last couple of years, there hasn't been much to experience. So we did see <laughs> yeah. we did see a little bit of an uptick uh, over the last few years, with the exception of you know 2020, 2021. So I do expect that to bounce back a little bit. But uh, but likewise, there's always a fine balance between experiences and goods. But uh, but yes, that will keep growing. You also looked at, and this is interesting, ethical shopping. What does that mean, and what are we looking at in that category going forward? Yeah, in the context of our study, what we do is uh, we ask Canadians, you know, you know, in terms of how they want to uh, express their values from a shopping and a brand alignment perspective, and about 44% of consumers will pay up to about 10% more for sustainable or ethical products or services. Now, there is a cap to that. That's not unlimited. And that basically says, I'm going to put my money, you know, quote unquote, where my mouth is in terms of aligning with a, a brand or a retailer that thinks like me or values things like me, whether that be the environment, climate change, you know, ethics, whatnot. But there's a cap to that, especially this year because of uh, the pocketbook tightness. The uh, Hollywood shopping season also includes, and, and this is really no no stranger to uh, charitable organizations out there. This is a popular time of year to say, "Hey, give us your money. We have you know great services and products to offer to people in need." Uh, how are charitable donations going to be impacted? Yep, uh, we tracked that as well. So this year, actually, of that sort of fifteen hundred dollars I mentioned, about one hundred and thirty dollars goes towards charitable donations. That's about a fifteen percent reduction from last year. Interestingly, not too surprising, but just on a a related point, in case you're interested, we actually saw in 2020, that that, that other year I mentioned that uh, we saw dollars go down, charitable donations actually went up. So uh, this year, obviously, there's a little bit more anxiety even around uh, donations. Interesting stuff. Marty, really appreciate your time today. Thanks for joining us. My pleasure. Have a good one. You too. That is Marty Weintraub, partner and national retail practice leader with Deloitte Canada. The 2022 holiday retail outlook from Deloitte is out. And while you heard a little bit of good, economic uncertainty is going to lead to some reduced holiday spending this year, which should not come uh, as a surprise to anyone with inflation where it is and the cost of living where it is at. 
You're listening to the Good Morning Hamilton podcast from 900 CHML. Well, there's an annual fundraising walk coming up for Wayside House of Hamilton. It's a uh, an institution that supports men who are struggling with uh, mental health issues, with addictions, and uh, we'll talk about what's happening this weekend and what Wayside House of Hamilton is all about. Regan Anderson is the executive director and Ryan Kitchen, the program manager at Wayside House of Hamilton, and they both join us here on Good Morning Hamilton. Regan, Ryan, good morning. Good morning. Morning, Rick. Thanks for having us. Regan, we'll start with you. What's happening this weekend? Well, it's our fourth annual uh, signature fundraiser. Um, We are joining everybody down at uh, First Ontario Centre at 9 a.m. for registrations. Uh, We're pulling together our our families, our friends, our former clients, existing clients, and those who uh, believe in the work that we do uh, for a walk and and and, a an opportunity for people to to raise funds for us and to support our programs. Ryan, is there a fundraising goal and what is this money going to ultimately be used for when it comes to those programs? Yeah, Rick, our fundraising goal is 200,000 this year. Last year we did over 150,000, which was incredible. Our goal last year, I believe was about 100. Um all of this money goes directly to client care. It goes directly to serve the men that we serve and provide them the opportunity to live a life in recovery and, and develop the support, get the information, and be able to move forward in their lives and live successfully with themselves and their families and, and achieve their goals. Regan, tell us a little more about Wayside House Hamilton and what you do and, and how many men you see maybe on a week-to-week or month-to-month basis. Sure. Um, we've been uh, on Charlton Avenue uh, West um, for over 55 years, uh, founded in 1967. We have 25 residential live-in beds at this location uh, for uh, our, our residential three-month program. And we have 37 units in the community for, for supportive housing. Uh, all of our programs are, are integrated together, so our clients... Um, flow through our programs based on their needs and we have support uh, for them 24 hours a day so that they can maintain their goals as as long as they wish to maintain them. Ryan we'll go back to you on this one are are these beds are these homes always full? Absolutely Rick and the wait lists um, are ridiculously long at times and and when it comes to addiction and it comes to people wanting to change that moment oftentimes is a very small window. And so we want to be able to get these individuals into the programs uh, as soon as we possibly can. So a lot of what we're we're trying to do with the fundraising is to be able to lower the wait list and to be able to better support those individuals who are on our wait list until they're able to get into the program. Our guests on Good Morning Hamilton on 900 CHML, Regan Anderson, the executive director, and Ryan Kitchen, the program manager at Wayside House of Hamilton. They're putting on a fundraising walk this Saturday starting at 9 a.m. at First Ontario Centre. Step up for Wayside 2022. You can get more information and register at waysidehouseham.com. Regan, what has the impact been for men who are struggling with addictions, who do have those mental health issues? What's the impact been like since the pandemic started? It's been uh, very uh, severe. Um, men trying to get into programs, uh, restrictions, isolations, um, 
individuals themselves in the community or were isolating and to engage was was more and more difficult so we invested uh, with our with support of the ministry to create uh, virtual care supports for them um, what is most uh, concerning was the length of time that they would have to wait on the wait list and as the substances that we support are alcohol and cocaine and crystal methamphetamines but also uh, the opioid uh, concern that uh, most are, are quite familiar with. The difficulty is the longer men are waiting on the list, the less supports uh, they may find and, and, and they become more immersed in their, in their substance use. And the sad reality, Rick, is that we lost a lot of men uh, to overdose deaths while on, on, the, uh, on the wait list and that uh, causes great concerns for, for all of us. Absolutely. Ryan, are things getting worse? You know, pandemic aside, are things getting worse now that we're seeing inflation where it is, the cost of living where it's going, the, the housing, uh, you know, insecurity and question marks? Are, are things just getting worse? Um, I would say absolutely. I mean, the more challenges exist for society certainly affects the men that we serve. But honestly, Rick, it's it's been very bad. And as Regan mentioned, um, with the adjustments we had to make for COVID and, you know, basically the spacing and things we had to do within the building, our inability to allow our continuing care clients. We have a large alumni of individuals who are doing very well and they could visit the house whenever they want. With COVID, a lot of that stuff changed. So I don't I don't know if it's getting worse. It's always been bad. Certainly the substances and the significance of, of mental health issues that are existing continue to get worse and worse. Well, we're happy to shine a light on an exciting event this Saturday that's going to do a lot of good for Wayside House of Hamilton and the men that they serve. Join them for the Step Up for Wayside 2022 walk. First Ontario Centre, it starts at 9. More information, you can register online, waysidehouseham.com. Regan, Ryan, thanks for the time today. Good luck with the fundraiser this weekend. Thanks so much, Rick. Thanks a lot, Rick. Reagan Anderson, Executive Director, Ryan Kitchen, Program Manager, Wayside House of Hamilton. You're listening to the Good Morning Hamilton podcast from 900 CHML. What could go wrong with an adult-only TikTok? Let your mind race to the deepest, darkest realms of your imagination. That's where, that's the first thing I thought of. Carmi Levy is a technology analyst and journalist and joins us now on Good Morning Hamilton. Carmi, good morning. How are you? Good to be here, Rick. Thanks for having me. Why is TikTok doing this? Well, money. Uh, I mean, it all comes down to revenue. And if you look at the model of most social media platforms, they get most of the money from from advertising. So you and I don't pay for the service. Um, it's free to us, but advertisers pay to, to, to be placed in our feed so that we'll see their ad click on the ad and the rest is history. The problem here is that as as services continue to grow, eventually you can only sell so many ads. You can only stuff your feed with so many um, uh, digital ads, and you can only charge so much for it. And at some point, you know, investors and and everyone else expects you to make more money. So what they're doing is they're expanding beyond advertising. This live feed is called TikTok Live. It's basically an online subscription service. It's kind of like if you've ever heard of OnlyFans which is sort of the established, dominant, really mostly adult-focused uh, 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 service like this, which kind of allows individuals to create their own channels 
and then have people subscribe to whatever it is that they do, adult content being the most lucrative, it allows them to make money in addition to advertising. Uh, they make money from subscription fees as well. So it opens up what we like to call a new revenue stream. That's really what it's all about is growing revenue. And they looked across the aisle and said, hey, OnlyFans is making serious bank with this. Maybe we can too because we are, of course, the kings of viral content. Let's put the two together and see what happens. So those who want to access this TikTok 18 plus will have to pay to get on the platform? Well, if you want to, uh, if you want to have your own channel, in other words, if you want to be a TikTok broadcaster, you want to, you want people to follow your stuff. It's not going to cost you anything, but you can charge other people to watch what you are doing. So, in other words, instead of just giving it away for free as you would with a Facebook live stream or an Instagram live stream, uh, instead you can charge people for the privilege. And uh, as we've seen before with similar services. Adult content seems to be the thing that people are most willing to pay for when it comes to social media. So they're not explicitly saying it's only adult-related content, but we know how this game is played. That's the thing where the money is made. How problematic is this, given the fact that most people, I think, who are on TikTok are probably under the age of 30, and many of them are in their teens or younger? Uh, you know, you know. Whenever I see something like this and the two words pop into my head, bad idea, um, you know, how problematic? Incredibly, uh, incredibly problematic, simply because you're combining fairly young demographics. So TikTok tends to skew seriously young. If you're the parents of a tween or a teen or someone in their early 20s, you know full well that TikTok is the place where they hang out. TikTok is the place where the coolest new videos appear, where all the, the influencers tend to, to break out first. Um, we've never heard of them because we're too old, but the kids certainly know. Combine that with uh, the, the launch of an adult-focused platform, an adult-focused service with literally no policing of it, and that's a recipe for just bad things to happen. So um, I see this, uh, and I worry. Uh, I worry about kids of a certain age. I'm glad my kids are a little bit older than that. We've already had that conversation. But I worry about how many parents literally don't know what their kids are doing on TikTok. They just buy them a phone and then ask no further questions, aren't part of the conversation. Uh, and uh, we're going to be hearing headlines from this for years to come. And what makes it so easy for tweens, those even younger than that, to get on social media is that, you know, the, the age restriction or the limit or the process of, uh, you know, verifying your age is, I mean, it's not only really there, it's, it's a big joke. It is. There's literally no enforcement at all. And, and I said, you know, disclosure, my kids were younger than 13 when we set them up on Facebook and Instagram, which they famously have uh, a minimum age limit. Uh, and, but of course, no one polices that. There's no, I can, I can fake my kids' age and my kids wanted on and their friends were on. And we were part of that discussion with them. So it was a journey for all of us. And we felt it was the right thing to do. And we know that pretty much all of their peers were doing exactly the same thing. And so the the same logic prevails here with TikTok Live. Uh, Even though the company says that, oh, we've raised the restriction. Um, You know, if you're going to be a video host, the restriction used to be 16. Now it's going to be 18. Nobody's checking. And so if a kid is 12 years old um, and is either uh, producing explicit content or accessing explicit content, There's nobody on the other end saying, no, you can't do that. And because you did do that, we're going to suspend your account. There will be no suspensions. 
No one really cares. It's really up to mom, dad, or, or you know, parents, guardians. Uh, and as we know full well, most parents don't live up to that bar. We're talking about TikTok's new 18-plus adults-only stream with Carmi Levy, technology analyst and journalist on Good Morning Hamilton on 900 CHML. So if OnlyFans is making a lot of bank, as you say, and TikTok is about to make a lot of cake on this as well, is Facebook and Twitter and the others going to follow suit? Oh, sure. In social media, everyone copies everyone else. And as soon as someone um, kind of gloms onto a new tactic, a new strategy that uh, is profitable, that drives growth, uh, pretty soon everyone else dives in. Disappearing content started with Snapchat. Pretty soon everyone else had it. Stories, you know, you can, you can have stories on Instagram. You have stories on pretty much every other platform as well. So I would expect uh, this to be the next big thing. Uh, and TikTok, of course, is the, the leader when it comes to viral content. Everybody wants to copy what works. And so everyone will be watching very closely. Um, and you can fully expect there to be monetization added to the recipe, not just on TikTok, but across the board. Uh, this is only going to spread. Uh, and parents who have their heads in the sand really are, are going to have to pull their heads out of the sand. Mm-hmm. Uh, because it's coming for your kids, whether you like it or not. Uh, lastly, we only got about 30 seconds. Kanye West is buying Parler, which is another social media platform. Should we be worried? Uh, uh, you know what? I don't think so. I mean, I think it makes for a great headline because, let's face it, Kanye West or Ye, whatever he's calling himself today, uh, that's what he does. Uh, but Parler is essentially a failed platform. It, 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 it got a lot of attention during the time of Donald Trump because it was seen as uncancelable, uh, but it, it's, it's sort of the home of, uh, you know, uh, ultra right wing views, uh, lots of racism, lots of extremism, lots of cyberbullying, um, kind of a nasty place to be, but they get a few hundred thousand users every single day, which is a drop in the bucket compared to something like Facebook or TikTok or YouTube or whatever. So uh, big head- headline, but ultimately nobody's using it. If you actually go on to Parler, tumbleweed flying down Main Street. <laughs> uh, no one really is going to be paying attention. He's screaming into the wind. Nobody's going to be listening. Carmi, uh, thanks for your insight and analysis on these topics. Appreciate your time today. Great being here. Thanks so much, Rick. Carmi Levy, technology analyst and journalist. You're listening to the Good Morning Hamilton podcast from 900 CHML. Well, you have heard the old adage, happy wife, happy life. I've said it maybe a million times myself. And I don't know, it's, it's worked for me, I think. Well, a psychology professor who has studied relationship satisfaction says couples should adopt a, a different mantra. Cheryl Harris-Simchuk is a professor in the Department of Psychology at Carleton University and joins us now on Good Morning Hamilton. Cheryl, good morning. How are you? Good morning. You've written in uh, theconversation.com, Happy Wife, Happy Life, A Harmonious Relationship is the Responsibility of Both Partners. This is phenomenal news for millions of men out there. (laughs) (laughs) So does that mean that Happy Wife, Happy Life doesn't work? Um, Well, part of it works, but uh, there's a better way to think of it. Um, What we found is that it's better to think of both partners uh, having a shared responsibility um, in terms of the happiness of the relationship. And uh, we conducted uh, a really big study, and I was a team member led by somebody named Matthew Johnson from the University of Alberta. And we tried to test, you know, is there any truth to the saying, happy wife, happy life? And our goal was to examine whether in mixed-gender couples, women are better than men, 
at predicting their own and their partner's relationship satisfaction the next day and the next year. And what we found essentially with relation to that uh, saying is that men and women were equally good at predicting their satisfaction uh, to the next day and the next year. That is, you know, how they're feeling today had seemed to have carryover effects into the future. You also wrote about women being used as barometers as to whether a relationship is successful. Why is that and when did that start? Yeah, there's this view, and it's not just held among lay people, it's held among relationship researchers too, that women's judgments about their relationships are more predictive of future relationship satisfaction than men's. And this came from a few different places. Um, So there's this evolutionary view that women have adapted a special ability to sense when things are going well in the relationship, as well as when things are, you know, a little bit off. And then another one relates to a social psychological view uh, related to gender roles. And it's this idea that women's primary role is to tend to the well-being and happiness of the relationship. How much um, does intuition play into this kind of mindset? Because men and women may have a different uh, level of intuition on how, uh, how others or how they view their relationship. Yeah. So um, I... For me, from my perspective, when I hear that, um, I think of the way people are raised and the information that they see and they absorb, right? So they hear about these old sayings like, uh, like happy wife, happy life. And, you know, it kind of, you hear it so many times, it gets to a point where it almost seems like a gut reaction that, you know, if somebody were to ask you about relationship advice, it might be the first thing uh, that, that comes to mind. And so uh, that, that's what I think of when I think of intuition. I, I think of like maybe all the things that might have been shaping some of those views that, that people say. I've told many a men, happy wife, happy life works for me, and maybe I should rethink my thinking to what you are saying the new mantra should be, and it should be happy house, happy spouse. Yeah, or very close. Happy, happy spouse, happy house. Okay. Yeah, or it works, it works both ways. So how do we make that work? Yeah, well, the first step is to realize that relationships have their ups and downs. You know, some days are better than others. And so what uh, our research then suggests is that it's important to notice when things are, let's say, going well. And when things are going well, it's not time to take a break. Uh, It's time to double down because the more you put into the relationship today, it's likely to have more carryover effects into the future. And on the other hand, if things aren't going well, you know, if you, you notice that conflicts are escalating more or the spark has fizzled, it's time to do something about it now. You know, like make some change so that you can uh, change your relationship path. You can read more in theconversation.com. Cheryl Harris-Simchak, professor in the Department of Psychology at Carleton University. Thank you for your time today. Thank you so much for having me. The uh, headline in that article, Happy Wife, Happy Life, A Harmonious Relationship is the Responsibility of Both Partners. I don't know. I've, I've done the happy wife, happy life thing. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to switch it up here. Happy spouse, happy house. Yes, let's all try it. Thanks for listening to the Good Morning Hamilton podcast. You can listen to the show live weekday mornings from 530 to 9 on 900 CHML and online at 900CHML.com. The Good Morning Hamilton podcast is available on Apple Podcast, Google Podcast, and wherever you get your favorite podcast. I'm Rick Samprin. Thanks again for listening. And don't forget to subscribe to the podcast. It's free, so you never miss an episode. And make sure you rate and review.